0: Good morning. Um, The reading is from Isaiah, chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, and his reverent recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the sand like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom, then, will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. What do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Great. I feel a bit like I'm playing pulpit tag with Ben this morning. But we're coming now to the preaching of God's word. It'd be great if you had a Bible open at Isaiah chapter 40. We're starting a new series this morning, beginning of a new term. And over the next nine weeks, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 together on Sunday mornings and also in our small groups during the week. It's a great time to join a small group. If you'd like to be part of one, get in touch with us at the office. Ask around. I'm sure you'll find someone who's part of a small group already. Or you can hop on our website. We've got a small group finder there that you can make use of. Also, because this is a long section of scripture, we can't cover all of it in detail during our morning services. There is a reading plan that's available in the foyer um, near the library. And if you grab one of those, there's a short daily reading every day uh, that you can follow through for the next 15 chapters with us over the next nine weeks. It'd be great to grab that. If you're not doing something regular in terms of your Bible reading, maybe that's what you need to give it a kickstart. Uh, The good news is you can tick off today's reading today because we've just done it. Uh, so just a little push to encourage you to get on board there. I'm going to pray. Then let's get into God's word together. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for your word that you reveal yourself to us. And we pray now that as we read it and discuss it and think about what it means, that ultimately, Lord, we might know you in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. i ask you a question. When did you become a Christian? might have been, um, maybe you were like our kids, we hope for our kids here this morning, maybe it was that you just never knew a day when God wasn't your father, when Jesus wasn't your Lord and Savior, when the Holy Spirit wasn't your helper and comforter. Or maybe, you know, this is my experience as a young child, you heard the gospel for the first time and you responded in faith in the Lord Jesus. Or maybe it was when you were at university And you heard the gospel and you realized you had to, this was something you wanted to do, that you owned your faith for the first time. Or maybe it was as an adult later in life and suddenly, you know, the the gospel made sense and you threw your lot in with Jesus. Maybe it was a few years ago. Maybe it was in the last few months. When did you become a Christian? But let me tell you, whenever it was, when you became a Christian, something incredible happened. You see, by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were brought into relationship with the God who made the universe and who made you. You were brought into a relationship where you can know him as your creator and father and friend. This is what being a Christian is really all about, friends. Friends knowing God in a brand new relationship that's only made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, ultimately, becoming a Christian is not about taking on a new moral framework. It's not about political alliances. It's not about religious practices and structures or personal growth or theological constructs or doctrinal tribes or social groups or belief systems. Ultimately, being a Christian is about knowing God. God. And to reduce our Christianity to anything less is a big mistake. So over the next nine weeks in these 15 chapters in a well-known part of the Bible, we're going to see a God who reveals himself and his character in amazing ways. We're going to get to know our God who wants us to know him better. Now. Isaiah is a big book. A couple of years ago, we did chapters 1 to 12 as a series, and that was great. Chapter 40 is quite a jump away from there. It's in the second half of the book. And to help us get our bearings, i just like to share with you where we are in the story. The first half of Isaiah, from chapter 1 through to chapter 35, really, is God's people facing a real and scary threat from the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is regarded by historians as the world's first military superpower, And they were marching across the ancient Near East, just swallowing up kingdoms as they went. And the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to Assyria in 722 BC. But God spared the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem because King Hezekiah prayed to God that they would be delivered, trusting the promises God had already made to David. Actually, this whole incident of Hezekiah praying when the Assyrians are knocking at the door, that's all recorded for us in Isaiah 36 and 37. But something changes in chapter 38 and 39, where Hezekiah actually becomes proud, and he loses faith in God, and God responds by judging Israel's or Judah's sin in the form of an invasion and captivity, not by Assyria, but by Babylon. Babylon. And this future defeat and exile cast its long shadow over the second half of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 40 all the way through. But thankfully, that's not the whole story. Because while the Lord never pulls punches in regards to his people's sin, the sin that will take them into exile, the tone of this part of the book is very, very different. I wonder if you picked it up as Gene read it. Yes, the exile is in view, but it starts by God saying, comfort. Comfort my people. And as we move through, we're going to hear notes of comfort, of love, of restoration, of faithfulness, and of future grace. Yes, there will be exile, but there'll be joyful return, joyful restoration. And pretty soon, actually, around um, chapter 55, 56... Even the return from exile gives way. And it's like one of those, I wonder if you've ever been to the theater, you see those transparent backdrops they put on the stage, and then suddenly it it goes up and what's behind was there all the time, but you kind of didn't see it. And so in a similar way, the exile gives way to something greater behind it. Not just the restoration of a geopolitical nation, but the restoration of all things. A new creation, new Jerusalem, where people from every nation know the Lord. And he dwells among them as, his, as, as their God. And we discover that this is made possible because of how God works through a very special character that's introduced in these 15 chapters. The servant of the Lord. He's the one who will bear the sins for God's people and will make all of this restoration possible. And of course, we know that one ultimately to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, more of that as we go on. But I do hope you can join us over the next nine weeks as we get to know our God better in this part of the Bible. Now, this morning we're talking about comfort. And, you know, we all need comfort at different times. There's a well-known brand of fabric softener called Comfort, isn't there? It promises epic fragrance, luxurious softness, super smooth and next-level dazzling. Wow. I don't know if it's quite the comfort I need, but well, there you go. I've got a pair of old moth eaten tracky pants I like to put on at home when I'm wanting to be comfortable. I hope you never have to see me in them. (laughs) But you know, jokes aside, usually comfort is a deeper need. It's a deeper need than just being comfortable. We usually need comfort when we're hurt or in pain, when we're disappointed or let down by someone, when we're overwhelmed by sorrow, when we've experienced trauma, when we've experienced loss, or or even just when we feel completely worn out. I don't know everyone's story here this morning, but I guess that most of us in this room would know what it means to know a pain that cries out for comfort. For some, it lasts a moment. For others, it lasts a lifetime. When do you most need comfort? It might be right now. Well, it's my great joy to tell you this morning that the God of the Bible is the best comforter that there is. But I don't want to just tell you, I want to show you. And so this morning we're starting where chapter 40 itself starts, with God's comfort for his people. And what I'd like to do is show you four grounds for knowing God's comfort in this chapter. Four ways that we can be sure that God's promise of comfort is one we can trust. Now, as I said, it'd be great if you can have a Bible open with you so you can follow along with us. The four headings that are there in the sermon outline in the bulletin, you're welcome to use that to follow along and take notes if you'd like. Now, Isaiah chapter 39 ends with this ominous news of exile in Babylon. So Hezekiah foolishly got a bit friendly with the king of Babylon, a guy called Merodach-Baladan. Sounds like a bad guy, and he was. Hezekiah thought that it, uh, it would be prudent, wise, to just be friends with this guy in case God didn't really come through when the Assyrians were knocking at their door. And unfortunately, uh, about a generation later, Babylon invaded and forcibly removed God's people from their homes to a land far away for the lifetime of a whole generation. This is what Isaiah is promising in chapter, at the end of chapter 39. So what are God's first words to this wicked and wayward people in chapter 40? Well, have a look there with me at verse 1. It might surprise us. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Of course, these words will be familiar to anyone who's ever watched or listened to Handel's Messiah. Isn't that amazing? Jerusalem's warfare hasn't even begun. And yet God is already announcing its end with comfort and with tenderness. How can he do that? It's quite simple. It's because her iniquity is pardoned and her sins completely paid for. Now, I think this introduces an incredible idea in the Bible. Yes, exile was the consequence of Judah's sin. It's like if you or I break the speed limit, the consequences are fine. It might be an accident. Those are the consequences for doing the wrong thing. But earthly consequences can never really pay the price that we owe to God for rebelling against him and his laws. So we must be careful not to think that 70 years by the rivers of Babylon themselves actually paid for Israel's idolatry. The reason the Lord can announce their pardon is not because of the exile that they will undergo, but because of another plan which he's been developing back since the first chapters of Genesis, and which will still be developed over the next 13 chapters here, which begins in verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, friends, God can promise his people's pardon before the fact because the Lord himself is coming for his people in a blaze of glory that the whole world will see. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who came to deal with our sins forever through his death and resurrection and bring us home to God. And what greater comfort could there be than that God himself pays the price for the sins you have committed against him? This is the kind of God he is. He is the father in Jesus' story who sees the prodigal son in the distance, the son who rejected him and wished he would die. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him, Luke chapter 15. Friends, this is our God the greatest comfort we could possibly have is that God has forgiven our sins forever in Jesus. Because when all is said and done, and this life and its pain and struggle is over, we will stand before God, and the only thing that will matter is whether we have been pardoned in Christ or not. And in 10 million years, when our faith in Jesus has given way to life with him forever in heaven, our pain and sorrow now will be like a forgotten dream. So, yes, the first ground of our comfort is that we can take comfort in the fact that God has completely forgiven our sin in Jesus. He is a God who pardons. The second ground for God's comforting character in this chapter is his permanence. God never, ever changes. We're living in an age where things are changing faster than we can keep up with them. Yesterday, it felt like a coalition government and petrol cars. Now it's a labor government and electric cars. Uh, Everything's changing just so rapidly. The pandemic has probably changed our society forever. And then there are people, if, if we're honest, we're pretty changeable too, aren't we? Might be the weather, might be what's on the news, might be what we ate for breakfast, might be the stresses and strains we're under. One day we'd give the shirts off our backs to someone, the next day we wish the same person would take a long walk off a short pier. <laughs> or maybe it's us, maybe we have relationships where there's an invisible line that we just know we mustn't cross, or we risk them severing the connection with us. Oh, and we don't stick around forever ever either, do we? We we die. Yes, there might be that person in our lives whose love we can always depend on, but Sadly, one day, they're just not there anymore. Look at verse 6. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the fields. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. We're grass, friends. But God never changes. He's always the same. He's always been and always will be. So verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When God says something, he means it, and he always follows through. So there's comfort in this, that our God is always reliable, always available, never dies, always keeps his word, always treats us the same no matter what. He is permanent. Now, the late Bible scholar J.I. Packer wrote in his classic book, Knowing God, there is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. And the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. God's always the same to us, and he knows everything about us. How about that? And the reason for this, it's not because we're special. The reason for the way he treats us is not at all based on us. It's all based on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brings us back home to our heavenly father we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can take comfort from the fact that God never changes because Jesus never changes. Thirdly, we can take comfort from God's power. It's no wonder this section begins with an invitation to God's people to hear the good news or the gospel which is in verse 9 behold your God take a long hard look at the God who is your God because of Jesus I don't think we often contemplate God enough that we actually think about what he's really like he's an amazing God And so verse 9 to 26 then kind of reads like a CV of this mighty shepherd God. And just to bear in mind, shepherds in the Bible, they weren't the kind of pale-skinned, heart-playing sooks that we see in Renaissance paintings. They were strong, tough men who lived their lives outdoors, fought off wild animals. That's a biblical shepherd. And that's the image the Bible uses here to describe God, a, a shepherd Who powerfully and lovingly cares for and leads his people, verse 10 and 11. But I wonder if sometimes you feel your pain is too big for God. That's you, look at verse 12. He can hold the world's oceans in the palm of one hand, He can measure space with His fingers. That's what a span is, a hand span. Not only that, he can tell you how much all the dust on earth weighs. Consider that if you think that your problems are too big for God. Or perhaps sometimes you feel your problems are too complicated to even think about bringing to God. If that's you, look at verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God knows it all. He's worked it all out. Never confused. Even the most complicated problems we can bring to Or perhaps sometimes we feel that our burdens are too heavy for God to do anything about. Well, look at verse 15. The nations, Russia, China, America, these powerful nations that hold world peace in tension, they're like drops in the bottom of a bucket to God. In fact, look at verse 24. He can simply blow on them, just, and they wither away. If this is what our God is capable of, just think of what he could do with your difficulties right now. There's one more thing to notice about God here is that there is absolutely no one like him. Verse 18 and verse 25 ask the same question, who will you compare the Lord to? It's, It's a rhetorical question, of course, and the answer is no one. There is no competition. And so one of the ma- most basic comforts for God's people is his incomparable power and majesty. There's nothing he cannot do. Nothing and no one can stand in his way. He's never intimidated. He's never confused. He's never helpless. And he loves you. He loves you. He cares about you. Which helps us move into this final section because it does begin with an understandable concern. If God is so big and so great and so powerful, how could we possibly matter to Him? We're so weak and sinful and foolish and little. Look at verse 27. They were asking the same question. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. So we're reminded again what he's like in verse 28. Sometimes we need things repeated so we actually get them. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Our God is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. But then we're told that this majestic and powerful and eternal God is also deeply concerned for his people and willingly provides what they need. He gives power to the faint, verse 29, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint because of what the Lord provides. Now, I remember someone pointing out something important in these closing verses of the chapter, something which is easy to miss. Because we can easily assume that if God is not giving me what I need to soar above my troubles like an eagle, then somehow he is dropping the ball. It's not necessarily so. Yes, sometimes... The Lord may give us wings and we can just soar above it all. But at other times, he might provide enough for us just to run with our feet on the ground. And still at other times, he may provide just enough to keep us putting one foot in front of the other. Simply walking, moving slowly forward in a straight line, one step at a time. Yes, we're always moving forward because of what God provides. It's always enough, though. The promise is still that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And we can trust that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, will always provide what we need in any situation. And so we can take comfort in the fact that the Lord God Almighty cares about us, that he loves us, and is eager to provide for us. Now, when we experience weariness and sorrow and disappointment and pain, we look for comfort, don't we? Sometimes we seek that comfort in good places. We might go to a loved one, a friend, find that comfort. Sometimes, though, we look for that comfort in unhealthy places, don't we? Maybe it's an over-reliance on comfort food or on retail therapy. Maybe it's alcohol. There's a there's a reason there's a drink called Southern Comfort. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's sport or exercise, trying to sweat away the worries. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's porn and sexual experiences. Maybe it's drugs, including abusing prescription meds. Where do you go for comfort? the Bible shows us the best comfort that there is, a God who forgives sins, who never changes, who can handle anything we can throw at him, and who cares deeply about us and always gives us what we need to keep going, however slowly. It's not just the Bible tells us these things about God, but that these things are actually true. Because we see them in the character of Jesus himself. Remember that Jesus said in John 14, verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. See, Jesus is the living embodiment of the Lord God and perfectly reflects his character. A few verses further down in chapter 14 of John's gospel, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit as another comforter, at least to use the language of the old King James Version. This points backwards to remind us that Jesus' ministry to his disciples was one of comfort. He was the comforter before the other comforter. His ministry was one of comfort, of reassurance, of care, enough to take him to the cross for those he loves. This is what Jesus is like. This is what the Father is like. This is what the Holy Spirit is like. Friends, do you know the Lord God as your comforter? Is he the God to whom you can take your your singleness, your grief at the death of a loved one, the pain from the abuse that you suffered, your disappointment in someone who's let you down, your worries about your kids, your depression, your medical test results, your loneliness, even your own bad choices? Is he the God who you can take those things to, those painful things and receive comfort in return. In the Bible, we know a God who forgives sins, who never changes, who can handle anything we can throw at him because he's powerful and who also cares deeply about us and provides what we need to keep going. You know, often the way to move from knowledge about God to knowledge of God, to truly knowing God is simply by putting his character to the test. Because if he's really like this, we can trust him with the things that cause us pain and sadness. Tell God your, your troubles. Ask him for comfort. The Bible says comfort is one of the things God does best. Whatever, Wherever you need comfort, take it to the Lord. Even if your pain and your sorrow is the result of your own sin just like it was for God's people. Because he never changes, he still stands with open arms to enfold you in his comfort. Not because of anything special about us, remember, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the book of Hebrews again tells us, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, just as we move to a close, I want to take our knowledge of God as a comforter just one step further. If you've got a Bible with you, please flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Someone once said, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable. He comforts us to make us comforters. Think about that. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You and I know many of the people that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis don't know God. But they know us. Would we be the ones they come to for comfort when they get a a devastating medical diagnosis? or when they're at their wits' end about their kids, or when their husband or wife walks out on them? Do they know that we'll be available, that we'll listen, and that all of our words and actions towards them will be full of love and gentleness and compassion? Because, you know, too often it's easy for Christians to be known as just having a conservative view, or known as weird, or known as kind of always up for an argument about something, or even not to be known at all because... Actually, we fear being known. We fear what people may think of us if, we, if they knew we were Christians. I mean, you can't even be the CEO of a football club anymore and be part of a church without getting into trouble. But if God has opened his heart to us and comforted us with the best comfort that there is, how can we not open our hearts to others and show them true comfort? Perhaps a ministry of comfort to a world in pain would do more for the spread of the gospel than any amount of convincing arguments. The world is a harsh place, friends, and people are getting hurt all the time. Even by the things and people they'd put so much faith in. But because the Comforter lives in us, and because we've personally known his comfort, let's be the ones to truly comfort a hurting world, and in doing so, Let's show them Jesus. How about we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you and praise you that you are so full of love and mercy and care and compassion and comfort and regard for us. Lord, we thank you that you've proved this supremely in sending Jesus, your beloved son, to the cross for us. Lord, forgive us, please, for holding your comfort at arm's length. Forgive us for not showing your comfort to the hurting world around us. But Lord, please help us today with the things which cause us sorrow and pain to truly know your comfort. And in doing so, Lord, may we show that comfort to the world around us so that they can see that we know God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to call the kids back in from Sunday school before we sing.